is a joy to be back together tonight and singing together, studying God's Word together. Um, and uh, we're excited to get back in the book of Philippians. So we'll be in Philippians 2 tonight. And if any of you have been around my family lately, uh, you know that my son has, has a loose tooth. Uh, nothing quite says your little boy is grown up like a, uh, a wiggly tooth. Um, so anyway, really grosses Mary out, so uh, that's fun. And uh, it's been loose for a few weeks, so she's had a lot of sanctification in that time. And uh, this morning at breakfast, Colin was sitting on my lap, and um, you know, I like to wiggle his tooth, and uh, kind of fun, but... Uh, he was sitting on my lap, and I was kind of working on his tooth, and, uh, and I just kind of asked him, hey, hey, bud, you want me to pull that out for you? And I, his eyes got wide, and he's like, no. He's like, that would, that would hurt. I'm afraid it will hurt, you know? So we went back and forth, and it was me trying to convince him it's only going to sting for a second or two. You know, it's easier to eat if you don't have it. You'll be glad that you did it. Wouldn't it be cool to hold your tooth? And he's just like, no, Dad. Like, I, I don't want to do this. Um, all my attempts to convince him weren't working. And eventually, he kind of hopped back off my lap and went off and was doing something else uh, in the room. And Juliet came over to take his place, my the baby. And uh, she's kind of getting to, she can almost, almost talk. She thinks she can talk, so she talks a lot. So she hops up on my lap. She's got her little toy that she wants to play with. And so we're kind of going back and forth, and, and, um, and then without even really thinking about it, I said, you know, Colin, when I was a little boy, I, I pulled out my own tooth, and instantly that got his attention, you know, and he kind of whirled over, and he was like, you did? And I said, yeah, and then I didn't even think about it. I was that, and I just went back to playing Polly Pockets with Juliet, you know, and we are kind of doing a little thing, and then about a minute later, no joke, Colin pops back up beside me, tooth in hand, blood in his mouth, and he's like, Dad, pull my tooth out. (laughs) And, you know, I was a proud father moment, but (laughs) the more I reflected on that, I didn't even really connect the dots until later that day when I was in my office. And I was just thinking about the power of examples, right? The power of examples. Even something as simple as, you know, this, this little example. In all my attempts to convince my son to pull out his tooth, they fell short. Until I said, hey, I did that when I was a kid. And that totally changed his perspective. Somehow that little example motivated him. It helped him see that it was possible. It gave him something to aspire to in real time. And that's because we all know that examples uh, in life are powerful. And tonight, we're going to jump back into our study of Philippians, and we're going to see that Paul understood the power of examples. If you remember back, Paul is writing this letter to refocus this church in Philippi back on Christ. So they'd begun to lose focus a bit. They were beginning to get off track in a couple different ways. You might think about it as sort of they were distracted on the inside and distracted on the outside. On the inside, there were some divisions going on and bickering, disunity. And that was starting to threaten their congregation. And then on the outside, persecution was kind of ratcheting up. And discouragement, fear. 
And both of those were, were hindering the Philippians from staying on their mission as a church in the Roman colony of Philippi. And so how does the imprisoned Paul help them? Right? Paul's in prison, kind of locked up, locked away. How does he help them? Well, he writes them a letter. A letter to help them solve their disputes, to deepen their courage so that they would get back on the mission in Philippi. But what's fascinating to me is that this letter is not the only way that Paul wants to help them address their issues and get back on the mission. Thinking, hang on, what do you mean? The letter's not the only way. What else can Paul do? Paul knows that the church needs leaders. She needs men who are present. Men who will be examples to the church. Men who embody Christ's character. Men who provide examples to show the church the way forward in love. So a letter is not enough. Paul doesn't just write to them while he's in prison and he can't visit them himself. He plans to send them men. Trusted men. As models for the Philippians to follow. So look with me in chapter 2, 19. It really flows out of everything Paul's been saying earlier, kind of riveted in the example of Christ. But he says, I I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So initially he tells his church that he wants to send Timothy as soon as he can. Right? As soon as he figures out what's going on with this trial, the outcome of that. He's going he's gonna to cut Timothy loose, send him to the, to the Philippians. Eventually, he himself hopes to be released from prison. Actually, he's expecting to be, we see, and that's kind of from the Lord. So apparently the Lord told him he was going to be released at some point. He doesn't know when. But he hopes to be released from prison and, 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 he come, and come there himself. We see that in verse 24. But then before even he sends Timothy, before he himself comes, he is apparently already sent, or is either about to send, their own leader, Epaphroditus, back to them. Look in verse 25. So I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So what what is a passage like this, what does it show us? Okay, It reveals something to us about Paul's ministry strategy. It shows us that in Paul's mind, the church desperately needs faithful leaders, leaders she can follow, leaders who are with the church, 
Leaders who know the church and leaders who can embody Christ's own character to the church so that this church in Philippi has an example to follow. And it's crucial to point that out because today many in the church are skeptical of leadership. Right? Maybe you are. Maybe you're coming from a background where one of your leaders was not a good example. Maybe they fell into some public sin and had to resign from ministry. Your heart might have a hard time not being suspect. Especially if you've been manipulated by leadership in the past. Well, whatever the case, unfaithful leaders abound. And they can do great harm by their unfaithfulness. But it would be a grave mistake for you to think that you don't need leadership because you've been hurt by bad leadership. So many people are tempted to hold the church at arm's length, and they're they're tempted to actually refuse to submit to church leaders, even though Christ commands that. They're tempted to do these things because they were hurt by some bad ones. But the answer to bad leadership is not no leadership at all, like anarchy. The answer to bad leadership is good leadership. Christ-like leadership. It's qualified, humble, self-sacrificing leadership. Leadership that leads to Christ's agenda and, and facilitates His agenda and not the agenda of the leader. Now, if you know a little bit about Paul, you know a little bit about the fact that he spent his life developing and deploying leaders, like we see right now. This isn't abnormal for Paul. Paul's all the time like, hey, come here. You go here, you go there. Hey, church, I'm sending this guy to you. Hey, because he's all the time moving, moving his guys back and forth. Paul knew that leaders were essential to the health of the ministry. And that's why he spent so much time trying to mentor, train, and install them. In fact, you could say that Paul was just following his master, the ultimate leadership trainer, right? Our Lord invested himself in 12 key men. He didn't write any books. He didn't build any big megastructures. He invested himself in 12 men. And then he died. And then he was resurrected from the dead, right? 12 men, and then ultimately in three of them intensively. One author put it like this. He says, men are the method. Men, meaning, men were Christ's method for building his kingdom. He invested a lot in those guys. And he put, there was a lot at stake riding on their shoulders. So reproducing qualified leaders who can model and teach others is the method Christ gave to us. It's at the very heart of Paul's ministry strategy. And you see it right here. Paul's in prison, but he's got some dudes, Right? So, when it comes to sending someone to represent him in Philippi, what kind of man does Paul choose? Well, in our text tonight, we get a glimpse as Paul highlights his protege, Timothy. Interesting text. We get a peek into the kind of leader that Paul puts the highest price tag on, that Paul puts his confidence in, that Paul commends in the highest possible terms. It gives us a window into what we pastors want to continue cultivating in our lives, 
It gives targets to those of you who aspire to leadership in the church. It helps us see the kind of leaders that we should be installing. There's other texts beyond this one that are more comprehensive, but it gives us a glimpse into that. Your aim in life should be to cultivate what you see here, what you see displayed in, in Timothy's life, so that when the time comes, a more seasoned leader won't hesitate to say, I want you. There's this need over here, whatever it is. Now, it doesn't have to be pastoral ministry, but you are faithful. We want to put you there. So, what are these qualities? We're going to look at that tonight. But I need to say that this passage isn't just applicable to ministry majors, all right? I know there's ministry majors in here. I'm glad of that. Uh, you'll find this very applicable, Lord willing. Um, maybe a bit controversial, but that's okay. Um, but Paul intends this passage to be applicable to the whole church. Now, why do I say that? Well, think about this. Paul did not have to say all that he says about these men here if his purpose was just to communicate that people were going to come to them. Right? He could have just said, hey, I'm planning to send Timothy, Epaphroditus, and then if I ever get released, I'm going to come too. He could have said that. He says that, but he says a lot more. He takes extra time to commend these men glowingly. Now, I was joking. I think it was Mike. There's like four messages I want to preach on this passage from like four different angles, but I'm not going to do that. I'm only going to preach one. Um, But Paul was not afraid to affirm his men. And he affirmed them in the most glowing terms. They weren't perfect, but he esteemed them highly. Why? Why does he do that? Paul's purpose is to highlight these men to the Philippians as examples of Christ that they should follow, as models that they need to mimic as these sort of embodied representations of Christ's own character. And he highlights things about their character that this church needs to follow. Because these kind of men will guide them in reconciliation among each other. Because they're humble. And they're not about themselves. And not only are they humble and not about themselves, but these guys have weathered a lot of persecution, difficulty, trials. They had other, that other thing that was plaguing this church. Timothy, there's a lot, okay? We'll talk about some of that tonight. But Epaphroditus almost died to serve Paul, and Paul draws that out. He said he risked his life for the sake of the gospel, so honor him. And his point is that these are the guys that you want to help fortify the church in a season of persecution, in a season of disunity. You need men like this. And Paul's purpose is that the whole church learn to mimic the qualities that these leaders possess. And if Paul were here today, he definitely would want us here at Timberlake and Ray and Boundless mimicking these guys as well. Whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're a ministry major or not, it doesn't matter. He wants us to take these principles and mimic these two men. He wants to inspire us, kind of like a dad who pulls his own teeth out, right? He wants, he wants to inspire us to something that's achievable, that Christ is going to help us to do. It doesn't, he doesn't want to crush us. That's why he's given us these examples, okay? So tonight we're just going to focus on the first one, Timothy. Um, and he is an example worth following. And we're going to study these two commendable Christ-like qualities that we see in Timothy's life. They're commendable, Because Paul's saying, hey, look at this. 
I'm commending him to you in these ways. And they're Christ-like because Timothy is just like a faint little radiation of Christ that we saw back in chapter 2. The great example of Jesus. We all stand in his shadow. Um, And that's intentional from Paul. Alright, so there's these two Christ-like qualities. What are they? Or we can say they're targets. Kind of, they're targets for us to, to aspire to. To aim at in our lives. So the first one is a genuine concern for the well-being of the church. A genuine concern for the well-being of the church. Let's write that down. Genuine concern for the well-being of the church. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus, verse 19, to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Paul seeks to cultivate leaders who love Christ's bride who are willing to spend themselves for her sake, who will sacrifice themselves to see her flourish. That's what Christ does, so that's what her leaders must also do. And that's what Paul sees when he looks at Timothy. But before we talk about Timothy, I want you to notice something. It's easy to miss. Timothy's not the only example in this verse. There's a subtle example kind of in the background, and it's Paul himself. He's an example of this very thing he's commending in Timothy. Think about it. Where is Paul right now? Not a trick question. He's in prison, okay? And when you're in the prison in the first century, you don't need to be giving away people that care for you, okay? They need to be with you. He needs people like Timothy around him. In fact, Timothy is one of his closest and most trusted friends, The exact kind of person that I would want to make sure stayed at my side if I was in prison. Because Timothy would make sure that I'm fed. Timothy would try to protect me if there was something going on. That's who you want. Because guards aren't going to feed you, and they're definitely not going to protect you. But now, Paul is willing to give up his choice ministry partner because he's more concerned for the Philippians' well-being than his own. He's heard that the Philippians need good, wise leadership in the moment. Remember, Epaphroditus came, delivered the gift, and bled all over him about what was going on in the church. So Paul's saying, wow. His heart is heavy for them. He's concerned for them. And he wants Timothy to come back with good news. News of their obedience. And that's why he's willing to give up his closest friend, And now we're starting to get where Timothy might have picked up this kind of heart. Right? It's the kind of heart that, that is concerned for the well-being of others, particularly God's bride. He saw it modeled in his mentor, even in this moment. All right, but let's get back to Timothy. Why does Paul want to send him in particular for this job? He tells us. Notice initially that Paul says it's because he has no one like Timothy. Now, I think it should be translated slightly differently, okay? Literally, he says, it's because he has no one, it's going to sound weird, like-souled, okay? 
No one like sold. No one that shares his own soul like Timothy does. We might say like-minded today. You know, somebody that's like-minded. When Paul looks around, he says, it's this one, this guy. This guy shares my very soul for you. Whoa. Right? Well, that raises another question. In what way? Right? So in what way is... Timothy like-minded with Paul. What way in particular? Is he saying Timothy's just a little carbon copy of Paul with no individual distinctives or gifts? Of course not. Paul goes on to specify the way he is, quote-unquote, like-souled, and it's in his genuine concern for the welfare of this church. He goes on to specify exactly how he is like-minded. He says, this, this one who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Paul's saying, Timothy shares my very heart for you. He's just as anxious as I am that you guys course correct. His stomach is in knots like mine at the potential that you guys would wane in your focus on Christ's mission. We both wake up in the middle of the night thinking about you. He's concerned like I am that you flourish in Christ, and he's the real deal. It's a genuine concern. There's nothing else motivating him except your flourishing in Christ. Let's just press pause here for a second. Young men who aspire to be pastors or missionaries, are you thinking like that? You might not know exactly how to help people just yet. Okay, There's probably a lot of growing still left to do. But do you have the beginnings of this Christ-given burden for the souls of others? It certainly grows as you mature, but it needs to be there. It needs to be there in every believer, but it must be there in those seeking leadership roles in the church. It's a non-negotiable. Now let's take it one step further. You say, yeah, like I have a burden for souls. Well, if Paul were to play back the last week of your life, if he were to look at how you spent your time, would he assess you as sharing his own soul for the well-being of this church? Are you actually a member of a church? Do you adopt the burdens of those individual church members in prayer? Are you seeking to find and meet the needs of those church members? It's super important to realize, as important as education is, that having a preaching degree does not qualify you for ministry. Paul is not looking first for your academic credentials or your ministry abilities. He's looking to see if you're going to give your life away for the good of the bride. Do you share his burden for souls? You see, Paul knows that there can be other not-so-sincere motives operating. There can be these mixed motives operating in us under the surface in our ministry efforts. We might even appear to care for others, but really be motivated by our own self-interests. It's easy to fall into, for sure. I'm definitely there. have to repent often. But Paul knew it was easy too. 
And Paul had experience with it right there in Rome. There were a lot of wrongly motivated preachers going around preaching in Rome where he was in prison. In fact, you might even say it was the majority based on what he says in verse 21 right here. Notice he says, for they all seek their own interests. I have no one like Timothy or no one like sold because they all, all the rest are seeking their own interests. He's most likely referring to some of the church leaders that he's already mentioned. Those preachers who were ministering out of rivalry and envy all the way back in chapter 1. If you look in verse 15, it says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. But then here's the, the other group. The former proclaim, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So they were clearly jealous of Paul and they wanted to make a name for themselves. That's why they preached Christ. They wanted the recognition. They wanted the esteem of the church. They wanted the preeminence. And it motivated their ministry. That should be sobering to every one of us in here. So it's important for us to identify some common hindrances, some common wrong motives that might fuel our own ministry efforts. Okay, what are some of these? Again, it's not comprehensive, but just to kind of get the juices flowing a little bit. Um, I threw this one in there. Sometimes we might be motivated to do ministry um, to anxiously kind of earn God's favor. So what do I mean by that? Well, we know or we've heard that God wants us to serve or minister or, or whatever, and we want to avoid punishment from God. We don't want to be doing something bad that God's going to punish, so we try to show concern for other people. But really what's happening is you're trying to preserve yourself. You're trying to save yourself or to get yourself in the good category. And that's not a sincere motive. Because you're motivated by fear. You're afraid of God's judgment. And there's no joy there. In fact, there's likely resentment at God because you feel like you can't ever measure up. There's no sustained power to love, especially when it gets hard to keep on caring for other people. So you might be subtly, even as a believer, kind of falling back into this trap of trying to earn God's favor and make God happy with you. Other times, maybe God isn't so much in view, but, but others are, and we want people to think well of us. And that's what motivates us to show concern for others. We obsess over what our friends think, especially if you're in kind of a Christian environment like TBC or Liberty or, or whatever. Maybe your pastors, your mentors, your RA or professor that you have, you want them to think that you're godly. I want them to think that you're mature, that, that you're ministry-minded. And again, there's inherently on the surface nothing inherently wrong with that. But when you're away from them, or you're back home and you find that you have almost no motivation, that's a telltale sign that you're living to please people. You're different in private than you are in public. When someone else gets the praise that you want, and you get jealous, 
Or when you don't get the approval you want, you get depressed. When you criticize, you get criticized in ministry, and then over time you burn out. Nobody appreciates you. That's all symptomatic. That's all symptomatic of what the Bible calls the fear of man. Seeking the approval of man instead of God. And Paul says in Galatians 1.10 that if he were trying to please men, he could not be a servant of Christ. They're antithetical, incompatible, because you can't serve two masters. You can't do true ministry, according to Paul, if you fear what others think. If that's, a mo- if that's motivating and dominating your thought life and your actions instead of Christ. Because you won't be faithful to them. Because you're living to please them. So that's another not-so-genuine motive. Uh, sometimes all we're seeking is personal pleasure or fulfillment when we serve. Uh, we care for others because it makes us feel good about ourselves. Gives us personal gratification. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about the joy that comes from being used by the Lord in the lives of others. That's extremely satisfying and a motivation to serve. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being totally motivated to serve others only when it's convenient for you. On your own terms. As long as it doesn't cost you too much. As long as it fits within everything nice and tidy. You know, not going to ask anything demanding of you. And then you serve because you enjoy it. And then when it doesn't gratify you anymore, you're done. Those would be telltale signs of what I'm talking about. This personal pleasure fulfillment. And that's not the kind of genuine motive that Paul's talking about here. And then sometimes, just threw this one in for the ministry folks, ministry majors, the love of money. Now I know you're thinking, (laughs) he is way out in left field here. Nobody goes into ministry for money, right? And amen. Um... And most of you out there that are non-ministry majors are not going to love your friends more because they're going to pay you to do that. Okay? It's like Richie Rich or whatever. Um, I, was like, that's, I, just, I just dated myself. You probably don't even know what that is. Okay, we'll move on. All right? Okay. All right. When a church... Let's, let me talk to the ministry majors just for a second. Okay? When a church supports you, it might be tempting to just do your job so the paycheck keeps coming in. But that's an insincere motive for ministry. The paycheck is an immense blessing and it frees you up for more ministry. But if the choice is between being faithful to Christ and your job, you have to choose faithfulness to Christ. And many pastors, because of the love of money, will not say hard things to the wealthy sheep. Because they fear that the wealthy sheep will leave and the bottom line of the church budget will drop. So you can trace much of the failures of these mainstream pastors to either the love of money or the love of pleasure, often to both, they go hand in hand. And just, I want to put that in your your minds there, young men, you're not immune either. Now, at this point you're probably convicted. You know, almost any time we talk about motives... If you have any kind of spiritual pulse, uh, you know how quickly our hearts can get off track. And you're sitting there thinking, man, you know, I've done all these at some point. 
And you might be tempted to feel so discouraged that you're thinking, like, what's the use? Like, I can't, how, how, can I, how can I pursue, you know, where, where are we at? How can I pursue this genuine concern for the well-being of the church when I'm so wrongly motivated? How will I ever get to the point of being able to be commended like Timothy? But I want you just to step back and think for a second about what Paul's doing. Remember what he's doing here in this passage. Paul is commending Timothy. He's commending this very ordinary Christian guy to us. Okay? Did Timothy sometimes have to repent of mixed motives? Oh, yeah. But over time, Christ helped him cultivate a consistently genuine heart of love. And Paul's point here is that it's doable. Okay? It's doable. Consistency is doable. He's wanting to inspire you with Timothy's example. He doesn't want to pummel you in the dirt. Remember, this is the same Paul in the same letter who said, God's begun the work in you, and he's going to see it to completion. Over in chapter 1, chapter 2, God's the one that's at work, powerfully at work within us. So I want you to have encouragement here, and not, but I, just, I want you to identify some of these ways that it's possible that we can go off track here in our ministry desires. So how do we grow in this area? How do we cultivate a heart that's genuinely concerned for the welfare of the church? Well, it starts with your vision of Christ. It starts with your vision of just how much he's done for you. Paul went to great lengths to paint that vision of Christ earlier in chapter 2. And so if you struggle to, to be rightly motivated and sincerely love others, I would definitely encourage you to go back and listen to that message on Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, and in just that, the, the, the image of Christ and, and the example of Jesus there. Our love for others flows out of His love for us and our reception of His love in faith. It starts there, and it flows from there. It starts by embracing Christ's love. When we begin to grasp how bad we are and the great depths of His love for us, when we begin to realize how glorious and yet humble our King is, when we begin to see how secure we are in Christ and the great depths He took to save us, when we realize that nothing is beneath our Savior and that He hung naked on a tree, He experienced God's wrath, that He endured hell that we wouldn't have to, when that begins to sink in, when we start to experience that kind of love and faith, when we start to believe it, that's when we have new power to love. And only then. The same king is calling us to experience it and then pay it forward. To bend it out, to discover and imitate his heart. And you can't imitate what you haven't experienced. So our love for others flows from receiving Christ's love for us. That's where the joy comes from. That's where the power comes from. But you might be asking, what about when I'm exposed, right? My motives are all jacked up. Like you just walk me through that list. Well, guess what? He put you in that situation to reveal your motives to you so that you can turn from them. He exposes you as an evidence of his love for you. And that's the only path to becoming genuine, like Timothy. 
you're not, your default's not genuine. It's hypocritical. Okay? So to come out of that means you're going to have to see it. Did Timothy ever fear Paul? Well, I don't have a text for it, but I know the human heart, and I know Paul, and I would fear him at different, at different times. I would want Paul to esteem me highly. Was Timothy ever wrongly motivated? I'm sure he was. Did Paul ever have to counsel his discouraged or proud heart? Yes. But that was the path forward for Timothy. That was the path to genuineness. So next time you see a sinister motive lurking under your ministry efforts, thank God for seeing it. Thank Him for the exposure. Seek to turn from it. Because it's, this is His way, His loving way, of making you more genuine, like Timothy. And finally, I would encourage you, whoop, there we go, repenting of wrong motives. That was number two. And then finally, I just encourage you to love in ways that cost you. Love, the, uh, love those around you in ways that cost you something. Be proactive. Take the initiative to meet the needs of church members around you. Step out in faith. And guess what will happen? You ready? It'll be really hard. <laughs> It'll be a challenge. But that's good because it's growing you. The Lord will use that to make you more genuine as you actively humble yourself and seek to meet the needs of those around you. All right, so... You guys got that? If we get back to our text, that's our first target to aim at. This quality of genuine concern for the church. It's the first thing that Paul points to, this, this first quality. But notice he doesn't stop there. There's something else that makes Timothy the man uh, for this ministry post. Okay, And that's the second target to aim at. And We can say it like this. Timothy exhibits proven faithfulness through apprenticeship in gospel ministry. Thinking, wow, Clay, could you not have said that a little better? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I know it's a mouthful. It's more like a whole sentence than a quality, but um, that's where we're at. Bear with me. I'm saying it this way for a reason. What Paul values so much is faithfulness over time. He commends Timothy as an example to us in this area. And he commends him to us as something to aspire to ourselves. So let's, let's dig into this one a little bit. Now notice initially that Paul commends Timothy for what the ESV calls his proven worth. Do you see that? 22. But you, in contrast to these wrongly motivated folks, but you know Timothy's proven worth. Paul's saying Timothy's been around the block, spiritually speaking. Okay? His character and his gifts have been heated up to the melting point. They've been tested. They've been refined. He's mature, and he's been tempered with ministry experience and suffering. That's what he's talking about. So you know his proven worth. Now, that begs the question, like, how did he get this tempering? Well, it came through an intensive apprenticeship. An intensive apprenticeship meaning uh, challenging discipleship relationship with the Apostle Paul. 
Paul brought Timothy on to his ministry team uh, 10 years before this point that he was writing. Okay? Just for point of reference here. 10 years ago, Paul brought Timothy on. And Paul has been lovingly making investments into this man for the past decade. Paul says here that he served as a son with a father. Now, in Paul's day, this isn't just like a nicety, you know, kind of a way of saying that Timothy's his spiritual son, although that's, that's definitely there. It carries a strong endearment, yes, but the language is apprenticeship language. In those days, a son would take on the trade of his father. He would serve his father as he developed the skills of his trade. As his competencies improved little by little over time, he would grow to take on more and more of that trade to eventually become dad's replacement. And that's the metaphor, this father-son service metaphor. And so Paul is saying that Timothy is ready for this ministry post because he served faithfully over the years. And the Lord has worked through that to prove both his character and his ministry competency. So let's spread this out just a little bit, okay? What did this apprenticeship involve? Fair question. Well, if you flip back over to Acts 16, I'll try to cover this quick. You see their first real connection point here in, uh, in Acts 16. Timothy was a younger man in this, at this point, but he was already, already, already well spoken of by two separate churches in two different cities. Okay? So it's clear that Timothy was already blooming where he was planted. In his hometown, ministry area, you know, these churches that knew him. And Paul chose him because he already had the raw materials. And there was already some small track record of faithfulness in Timothy's life, even though he's a young man. Paul's not opposed to using young men. But it's clear that there was a track record, at least some track record of faithfulness, of love for the church in this dude's life already, even as a young man. So, for all you young ministry guys, that should encourage you. Now... Sorry, almost from the get-go, um, Paul tested that love. You know how? He had him circumcised. <laughs> Not joking. That's what the text draws out. Now, can you imagine that? There are a lot of background issues at play here, so we're not going to get into all those. But suffice it to say that it was Timothy's love for other Jewish Christians and a desire not to cause offense to the church that motivated him to go through with that highly unpleasant procedure. We're not talking in metaphors here. This is an actual circumcision of an adult male. Okay, so right from the get-go, Paul tested that love, and Timothy walked through it to submit himself. He didn't have to do that. But he did it in submission to Paul 
and out of love for the church. Now right off the bat, after that moment, his apprenticeship included a lot of time with the Apostle Paul. And being with Paul meant that you heard him teach a lot. A lot. Timothy no doubt spent his early days assisting Paul's needs in whatever ways he could, but he did a lot of observation. He did a lot of learning. He watched Paul plant this very church in Philippi a little bit later in this same chapter in Acts 16. And he no doubt assisted Paul in whatever ways he needed in this plant. He watched Paul evangelize Lydia. He saw Paul heal a demon-possessed young girl. He watched his new mentor get arrested. He watched him get severely beaten and then thrown in prison. He saw Paul even stay in prison after the earthquake to evangelize the prison guard. He watched Paul use his citizenship wisely. So you remember that, the little detail in the story. Paul was a Roman citizen. He could have appealed to that to get out of the beating. He didn't. He got beat, and then he appealed to, he appealed to his citizenship afterwards. Now, Timothy probably asked Paul why he didn't appeal to his citizenship earlier. Like, why do you do that? Why do you save yourself a beating, Right? And Paul probably told him that he wanted to model for the Philippians how to suffer well for Christ. I bet that made a little bit of an impact on Mr. Timothy. And then he spent several years traveling around with Paul. In those several years in Acts, he's virtually unnoticed. He's serving in whatever way Paul, Paul's needed him to. Doesn't mean he wasn't doing anything public, but he's virtually unmen- unmentioned. But he obviously earned Paul's deep trust. He became a close ministry partner. He became a cherished friend. And as he gained experience, Paul began to send him out as his official delegate. He began to represent Paul to other churches. Sometimes they were short trips. Other times they were longer assignments. He had him planting churches, training and installing elders and deacons, carrying out church discipline, rebuking false teachers, warning the rich church members, making sure widows were taken care of, modeling a godly life, and a whole host of other things. He had him preaching, evangelizing, discipling, and developing leaders. Over in 2 Timothy, you can flip there, at the end of his life, Paul reflects on this apprenticeship. And he reflects on what he intentionally modeled for Timothy. I love this passage. Because as you see Paul's heart, you see his intentionality with Timothy. And then you also see what Timothy aspired after, what Timothy was trying to learn from Paul, observe, and then follow himself. They give us some categories of what Paul's sort of apprenticeship involved. He says, notice, verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10, You, however, have followed my teaching. Number one, first category, teaching, right? So you're with Paul, you get a lot of teaching. But that means he's followed his teaching. doesn't mean he just heard it. It means he learned it, he's living it, and he's learned to disseminate Paul's teaching. He's listened to Paul interpret the Old Testament. He's listened to his promises and patterns and how they're fulfilled in Christ. He listened to Paul unpack justification, adoption, election, 
eschatology, the gamut, right? And he probably helped Paul write some of these letters in one way or another, even if he just provided some feedback and a pair of ears to listen to it, right? Paul says, you follow my teaching. You follow my conduct, he says. Next, next word here. He adopted Paul's character. He learned to mimic Paul. He watched how Paul lived. He asked Paul questions about why he did what he did. And then he adopted his lifestyle as his own. So Paul says, you followed my teaching, my conduct. Now he says, you followed my aim in life. I set this in front of you, my aim in life. You know what my aim in life is. So that means Timothy learned about what got Paul up in the morning. He learned about what motivated him to endure suffering. He, motivated what, he, he learned what motivated him and, and fueled him day by day. And, making, and he made that, Timothy took that aim and made that the great aim of his life. Paul says, you followed my faith. So that means Timothy has seen how Paul humbled himself, how he trusted the Lord. He saw where Paul went to renew his mind. He saw what truths he meditated on, where those battles were for cultivating faith. And then he mimicked him in that. He saw his faith. Paul says, you followed my patience. My patience. It means Timothy watched what situations were difficult for Paul. Situations with people, circumstances, things Paul would change if he could. And he watched how Paul responded to those. He saw how he cultivated patience. He saw how Paul repented when he was impatient. And then he mimicked that in his own life. Paul says, you saw my love. He watched how Paul was so enthralled by the love of Christ. How Paul never got over that he was the chief of sinners. That ministry was a mercy. And how that motivated Paul to lay his life down, to send Timothy away when he needed him most, to, for the good of the church. He saw that. He saw his love. He saw his love as he was motivated to get the gospel to unbelievers, to endure everything for the sake of the elect. He saw how Paul often took hits himself so that the church could flourish. Timothy watched this and adopted this as his own. Paul goes on, my steadfastness. He saw what steadied Paul, the truths, his relationship with Christ, his prayers, and he mimicked that himself. And then he saw, obviously, we talked about his persecutions and his suffering. So the point here is that Paul was intentional to develop young Timothy into a tried and true man of God. And Timothy was eager and zealous to follow and obey Timothy took initiative to ask questions, to apply what he was seeing, and that was his seminary. It was a father-son type apprenticeship that at the point of his writing had been about a 10-year investment. So why did I drag you through all that? 
because I want you to see how servants of the church are made. Is that fair? They don't just come out as servants. You don't just come out as a servant. Servants are formed by Christ through the apprenticeship of others. Through the apprenticeship, the dedicated mentorship of mature believers. And it takes time and intentionality on both sides. So if you're younger, try to put yourself around someone you can learn from. And you can learn a lot from people even if they're not your formal mentor. Sometimes you're thrust into positions that you're not sure you're ready for or opportunities that overwhelm you at first, and that's good as long as someone's there to guide you. Other times you're serving in some way you think is small and you're tempted to be discouraged because you're not advancing at the rate you think you should, but be patient and trust the process. As you grow, as you're faithful in the areas the Lord has entrusted to you, you'll likely get more and more responsibility in the church, and that's in the Lord's timing. And that's exactly how God intends it. So here is an example of a leader worth emulating. I could preach about three more sermons on this, okay? So I'm stopping right now. Here's a leader worth emulating. He had a deep and sincere concern for the church. He had a track record of faithfulness. And remember that Paul takes the time to tell us about Timothy, not to crush us, but to inspire us to these qualities. The Lord himself produces these things in his people over a lifetime. So take heart. He's not going to abandon his renovation project in your life. He's not going to abandon our church. As difficult as these things may be. Let this example of Timothy push you to do the hard thing. You know? To yank out that tooth because you know somebody else did, right? Um, Let that example inspire you to, to learn to love more genuinely and to seek to be more faithful in gospel ministry right where you're at. And as we do that, we can be sure that the Lord will use us in his mission, will stay on track just like he intends as his gospel spreads to the ends of the earth through our meager little efforts. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your inspired word. Thank you for this inspired example of Timothy. Thank you for men that we can model our lives after. Thank you for women who mentor women. And we pray that this example of, of a church leader in a time in history would stimulate us to more love and good works. Thank you for this group. Thank you for their sincere devotion to you. Thank you for the fruit that you're producing in and through them. And um, they're just a joy to shepherd. And we look to you now that your spirit would accomplish all that you intend. And Um, as you continue to minister to us and through us as we fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys are dismissed, and there's some goodies in the back, so go enjoy those.